You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank our friends at ZipRecruiter, Blue Apron, and Hunt a Killer, You'll hear more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Udigit Bhattacharjee, who's an award-winning writer whose features and essays on espionage, cybercrime, science, and medicine have appeared in the New York New Yorker, the New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, Wire, and other U.S. magazines. He spent 11 years as a staff writer at the weekly journal Science, writing about neuroscience, astronomy, and a variety of other topics in research and science policy. Two of his articles I want to highlight, a May 2004 article in the New Yorker, about a Boeing engineer who became a spy for China, and an April 2013 story in the New York Times Magazine that has nothing to do with intelligence, but it's so bonkers it's worth a read about what was perhaps one of the biggest scientific frauds of our time. He is also the author of the book, The Spy Who Couldn't Spell, A Dyslexic Traitor and Unbreakable Code in the FBI's Hunt for America's Stolen Secrets. Thank you and welcome for SpyCast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Vince. I'm delighted to be here. So this is a story that was covered in newspapers, uh, but, but this is a really in-depth look at the man, the case, and its implications. Can you tell us a little bit about how you went finding sources for a book like this? Because it's an espionage case, something done by the FBI. It's recent enough uh, that people out there understand who have done FOIA requests and others understand how difficult it can be to crack the veil of secrecy the government puts over so many of these kind of cases? That's a great question, Vince. Uh, it actually took several years to, to fully understand um, the case, uh, and I had multiple sources, as you might imagine. Uh, I, I had the advantage uh, of actually having some court transcripts to look at. So, uh, so let me first tell you what was easily available. There was a trial, a public trial, uh, and it went on for six days, and several people testified. And so that itself, you know, provided a wealth of information. But obviously, there was a lot more to be found about the case. Um, and so, uh, so I was lucky enough to get significant cooperation from the FBI because they wanted to uh, you know, they wanted to publicize the case. They, they thought it was a success story, and it was. Uh, so I, I developed a good relationship with the lead case agent, Stephen Carr, uh, and through him uh, and with the uh, approval of the FBI Public Affairs Office, I was able to interview some of the other agents who worked on the case. So that, that's, of course, one piece of it. Uh, but I did not get any cooperation from the National Reconnaissance Office, which is the agency that actually lost information in this in this espionage. Um, the information was ultimately recovered, but they, but they were the ones that were that were damaged. So they would not cooperate, and so I had to compensate for that through a lot of FOIA requests that uh, that would often come back, as you might expect, you know, heavily redacted. But there were little tidbits of information that I could then use to try and connect the dots and to go back to the sources who were talking to me. Uh, to press them for more information. Uh, then there was the problem of learning enough about Brian Regan, uh, who's in prison for life, uh, and he was sort of the main subject of my story, um, and I did not have access to him because he's under what are known as special administrative mm -hmm. measures, and, uh, and so you can't really access him. Uh, so... I was able to do that. It took me several years, but I was able to find people 
who were friends with him at different stages of his life who were willing to open up to me. I was, in the end, able to speak to one member of his family. I won't reveal who because that was uh, the agreement. And, uh, and so I was able to piece together enough about his life story. And then finally, I would say I really benefited from interviewing FBI agents who interviewed him after the case was over. And so that, those debriefing right. sessions actually contained a wealth of information. And even though I didn't have access to the recordings of those sessions themselves, which are classified, I was able to learn enough about what he disclosed about his life, his crime, his motivations. That's what informed the book. Yeah, it's a really good segue. His motivations is really what I want to talk about next. Is the Regan life story is really interesting. I mean, this is a guy, as the title of the book talks about, he was dyslexic. He he grew up in a uh, in an environment that they didn't really understand that. I guess it's like a lot of autistic kids today would not have been diagnosed that way back 20, 30 years ago. They would just been considered stupid, as Regan was. Um, there's a mnemonic in the intelligence community called MICE. It's not necessarily the most effective mnemonic for understanding motivation, but it's a nice, easy way, somewhat reductionist, but to understand why people commit treason. MICE is an acronym that stands for money, ideology, coercion, or compromise, and then ego. Regan doesn't fit into one of those exactly. There's really two that highlights his life. Let's start with ego, because I think ego is important. It's talking about his early life, because this is not a guy who grew up in a nice family that gave him a lot of love and didn't have a lot of friends who took him seriously, um, considered dumb by classmates and teachers, again, because they didn't understand his dyslexia. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how that shaped his future? Uh, that's a great question, Vince, and, and you're absolutely right to start with ego, and that's, in fact, what drew me to the story to begin with, because uh, if you read the book, you'll discover how Brian Regan was, was both smart as well as um, stupid in, in certain ways, and his brilliance was missed by a lot of people uh, who only saw his, his dumbness uh, wherever that occurred. So Brian Regan grew up uh, on Long Island uh, in a town called Farmingdale, and uh, he was one of eight kids uh, in his family. Uh, it was, you know, it was sort of a lower middle class home um, and he certainly didn't get enough attention and he knew from childhood that he had to fight for resources uh, there's, there are little scenes in the book where I talk about how he used a padlock to, to sort of to, to lock up pop tarts and, and little treats uh, because he didn't want his brothers to take them away uh, he would, you know, he would grow his toenails long so that he could uh, poke his his brothers off the bed, uh, so that he would have more room to 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 sleep. Uh, so so he was, you know, he had to fight for survival as a child, um, and all of this was made complicated by the fact that at school, because of his reading issues, and you're absolutely right, this was the 1970s. You know, not many people were aware of learning disabilities in the way that they are today, uh, and some would argue that even today the awareness isn't where it needs to be. Uh, so, so Brian Regan suffered uh, at school because of this perception that he was he was stupid. Even the friends in his neighborhood, uh, you know, because he had an odd personality, an odd sense of humor, uh, and he would often kind of speak in in a way that people thought, "Oh, that's just dumb." even though he was saying something smart. Uh, so he grew up with this, this kind of this complex, uh, feeling inadequate, feeling marginalized at school, in the neighborhood. And this shaped his personality. He decided that he didn't really have friends in the world, that the world was his adversary, and that he needed to fend for himself, and he needed to find a way that was one part of it. And the other reaction that he had to this, you know, this environment and, and this societal sort of marginalization was he decided that he would show that he was smart. You know? Yeah, you really seem to spend the rest of his life trying to shake this stigma of stupid that that's, had been following him around. That's exactly right. Uh, and so he, you know, he, he did things later on, we will discover in the story, that uh, he made certain decisions that 
he would not have made if he didn't have this kind of psychology. Uh, if he didn't feel the need to show that he was smart, he would have made smarter choices and perhaps would not have committed treason. Not comparing the two as far as intelligence is concerned, but I would think back to the movie Forrest Gump where everything that made him stupid growing up made him a genius yes. inside the army. <laughs> and really, you look at Regan's story and his dyslexia and the, pro- the problems that he had in school gave him distinct advantages in cryptology that other people didn't have. The idea that we all think in words, we all think in very systematic ways, but dyslexics oftentimes don't think that way. That's right. Uh, you know, dyslexics, uh, and not to make make this too, too generalized, but dyslexics often have a, a real visual talent, uh, a talent for recognizing patterns, for looking at the big picture, uh, and, and that's what, uh, what Brian Regan had. He, he was, uh, you know, he developed certain talents to compensate for his difficulties with reading and with sequencing information because that's really at the heart of dyslexia. Um, and uh, and he, he came up with his own kind of mental hacks, if you will, to tackle the day-to-day problems. Uh, and then when he went into the military, he used those talents. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, those talents were, were what helped him to use cryptology for his espionage well, plot. There's stuff like pattern recognition, too, like things that we don't necessarily have to fall back on. Right. Because our brains work in, in a you know somewhat normal, I hate to use that word, in sure. a more normal way. Mm-hmm. But you talked about the, you know, those shortcuts and those hacks. Yes. Started kind of like chess players see the board in, in groups and, and yes. in, uh, in sections instead of seeing it broadly. Yes. You know. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it was just, you know, the, the, there were things that he did uh, in the military that, you know, I think, I think he succeeded at his job as a signals analyst because of those talents. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, later on, he decided to use those, right. apply those same talents to something that was not quite as noble. Well, his talents got him a job at the National Reconnaissance Office, which most of our listeners probably have heard of, but if they haven't, it's still, you know, to this day, considered the most top secret of all the government agencies. It used to be NSA, no such agency, but NRO has really taken over as that. And even at NRO, which you would think would be a huge success for somebody growing up the way that he did, it still, still felt somewhat marginalized. He didn't get the sexy jobs. He was kind of doing almost busy work. And even there, much like he, when he was in middle school, his coworkers didn't really treat him with the respect that he thought he deserved. He was, uh, he was definitely looked down upon. You know, he was belittled from time to time by some of his coworkers. Um, you know, I'm sure that there were some coworkers who recognized his talents, but there were others uh, who would make fun of him. Uh, you know, who would, who would, um, you know, for, like, oh, there's Brian again doing this this silly thing or or that stupid thing, um, and and so and 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 Brian's kind of reaction again to all of this was. I'm going to show you mm-hmm. uh, instead of you know instead of just saying well whatever dude and then moving on he actually had an intense emotional reaction which is understandable given the history uh, you know through his childhood right. and adolescent years and so you know he, he would for example if they were all traveling on assignment to another city you know he would be the one to say oh I know exactly where you need to go and how to how to get from point A to point B, uh, and he would say it, you know, with a certain smugness, which of course then would invite more mocking, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and so it was almost like he just was unable to win the respect that he was he was hoping for. I mean, even at the most advanced and secret intelligence agency in the world, it's still very eighth grade. Yes, I mean, very much middle school being brought to the intelligence community. So Ego was a, played a big role, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about this as we move forward, but there was also a money issue mm-hmm. when it comes to Brian Regan. He, had, he himself had expensive tastes. He spent more money than he probably should have. Uh, his wife, very beautiful Swedish, I believe. Swedish woman, A woman, woman yes. also had very expensive tastes. Yes. Like buying horses and riding right. horses. And by the time he made his fateful decision, he was paying credit cards with other credit cards. He was maxed out tens of thousands of dollars that he owed, which is... Nowadays, and this is kind of a nowadays story, 
is a huge red flag with the intelligence community. But they didn't seem to pick up on the fact that Regan was so underwater that he was a, a you know a open for some kind of uh, in influence or recruitment by a foreign intelligence agents. I never, I never got a straight answer really about why the intelligence community, why the NRO uh, security people, why they didn't pick up on that. Um, now it's possible that there are many people, you know, w who have such credit card right. problems. Maybe it's not that rare, um, uh, but but Brian Regan certainly was an exception. I would say even by you know general standards of debt because uh, he came to a point where he just couldn't get any more credit cards in his own name, and so he started getting them uh, in his wife Annette's name. Uh, and and there's there's a sheet that I refer to in the book where, you know, he's scribbled the balances, you know, that he's he has to pay by by a certain due date for each of these 17 or 20 credit cards, and it's clear that he's using one to pay off the other and then the other to pay off the third one and so on. Um, well, they even discuss, he brings up the idea of declaring bankruptcy. Yes. And because of the social stigma involved that his wife, his wife says is, no. Yeah, yeah, his wife is absolutely unwilling. And so Regan knows that he has to find a solution to his money problem, and instead of going to a financial counselor, uh, instead of uh, sort of bringing his lunch from home, for instance, right. or doing some, some simple things that would have been much wiser than espionage, he decides that he's going to sell the country's secrets. Well, and that, I mean, anyone who's done an F SF-86 or, or applied for a secret autopsy or clearance, nowadays, you know, it used to be homosexuality was something that people were worried about because of the chance of blackmail, that's no longer a big concern. You know, it used to be having foreign relatives or a wife in this case who came from a foreign country was a red flag. But now more than ever, it's financial difficulties. I mean, that that is the one thing that can almost guarantee you're not going to get clearance is if you are so financially in debt, you've opened yourself up yeah. for this kind of uh, I, problem. I believe, you know, I believe in Brian's case in 1995 when he was assigned to the NRO, he probably was clear of debt. He probably it wasn't so bad, and maybe that's when he got his security review done. Mm -hmm. And then you know you can't be doing security reviews every six months. I mean there are so many intelligence employees. Right. Uh, it would be very resource intensive. So I think that he picked up this debt in between ninety five and and ninety eight ninety nine, and probably he wasn't getting reviewed in that interim. So. Uh, I don't know what the rules are now. If yeah. you know, if if people's finances have to be completely transparent, uh, and you know, if if supervisors or the security officials can take a look at your finances, your credit history, at any moment, or if they can only do that uh, during a clearance process, I, I it's not clear to me. But but of course, it was missed. Right. We'll talk more about Brian Regan in one minute. But let me take a moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized that the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. If you live in Washington, you might notice a new building going up in the L'Enfant Plaza area. It's hard to miss at this point. The building of the new museum is chugging away, but soon comes the hard part. We'll eventually need to hire a lot more people as we get closer to the opening. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people. Of course, who doesn't? But the process seems never-ending, and it can take a huge amount of time, time we don't have as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in just one place isn't enough to find these quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. Right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com first. 
That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. One more try and to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. So you, like you said, the solution was treason. What I thought was interesting, you hear a lot in uh, people who write about legal proceedings and court cases about the CSI effect. In fact, a lot of jurors now have watched so much TV that they're expecting you know, some great DNA source and everything. What's also interesting about the CSI effect, and the reason I'm bringing it up, is that you do see criminals now who are reading books on forensics and trying to understand ways to get around getting caught. And what I thought was really interesting about Regan, especially somebody who grew up being stigmatized for being stupid, was the extraordinary amount of research he did into how not to get caught for committing treason. <laughs> uh, yes, it's, it was delightful to see you know, how his mind worked. Uh, and this is what just blew my mind, uh, because especially given that a lot of people thought that Brian Regan wasn't the smartest bulb in the room, um, you know, he was researching various counterintelligence cases to to find out um, exactly how the FBI had gotten on to uh, traitors and spies in the past and what mistakes he could avoid. Um, it, you know, but there was a certain uh, naiveness to to the way he went about it. I mean, he was great in in. I, I think there's there's one little detail that I uh, never mention in the book, which is there was you know his he was being followed by the FBI uh, in in the year 2000, uh, or sorry, in in the year 2001, uh, shortly before he got arrested, and uh, I think there was one uh, instance where one of his daughters told him, Dad, I think we're being followed. And, uh, and he said, he looked, he looked around and he said, oh, no, I don't think so. Uh, and he was confident that yeah. he was, you know, his counter-surveillance techniques were so good uh, that he was definitely beating, you know, that, that, that he, was, he was really at no risk. We even got the NRO to send him to a counterintelligence training class. Yes, like he it. did. Yeah. He did, and and that was uh, that was remarkable to me. And and he went to this class right around the time when he was starting to to develop his plot. Uh, so he wanted to do this perfectly. You know, he wanted to commit the perfect uh, crime of espionage. Uh, I'm sure that all spies set out to do it, right. and uh, and and I guess the ones who get caught can't claim to have done it. It wasn't all that hard, really, in the end. The NRO didn't have the best security for their top, top secret documents. He walked in and out of the door with documents shoved in a gym bag. Yes. And, and even when caught with documents, which I thought one of the best stories in there is that he shoved them in a little thing next to his cubicle. A credenza, yes. Yeah, a credenza. And the uh, security people actually found them. Yeah. And then called him up and said, are these yours? And he said, yeah. And they go, okay, we'll send them back to you. <laughs> well, I don't think the security people found it. So it was like the office furniture, yeah. you know, it was, it was office manager uh, or, or some such department that was coming by, coming through the various offices to take away excess furniture. And so they removed this credenza while he was away on assignment. And it was uh, under lock and key, and, and they, they, un they, they said, oh, there's some stuff in, in here. And so they unlocked it, and they found all of these printouts, you know, a huge stack of printouts. And they didn't, uh, they didn't think about informing the security people at the NRO, saying, hey, we found this. They, they simply called him when he came back and said, is this your stuff? And he said, oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, and uh, and 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 they sent it right back. So it it just you know I think it it highlights the level of security that there that there was there. Yeah. In the end, he steals thousands and thousands of documents. Oh yes, it was it was the biggest you know theft of of government secrets up until that point, without a doubt. More than twenty thousand documents. And really, only Snowden really is is he surpassed, he surpassed it. it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and. Snowden, of course, didn't have to print them out. Snowden right. uh, did it <laughs> using a different means. And that's why I found Brian Regan so fascinating because, uh, you know, he really sort of straddles this old world when you had to hide documents and, and uh, you know, and smuggle them out of buildings 
uh, or take pictures and smuggle them out. And uh, and the new world where you can just use thumb drives and, and CDs to steal information. So what's interesting for any locals who are in the D.C. area is you buried all these documents around D.C. in Virginia and Maryland and different places. wasn't all to give to foreign intelligence service. Some we'll talk about later on were kept for insurance purposes. Yes. What I thought was interesting was the fact that even Brian Regan had a limit to what he was willing to give to a foreign foreign intelligence agency. There were certain things where he's like, no, I'm an American. I'm not handing this stuff over. I was really struck by that. Uh, and, and to me, you know, when I, in whatever stories I write, uh, crime stories or, or other stories, I'm always looking for the nuance, you know, for, for sort of the, the redeeming qualities um, and, and, and the humanness. And, and in Brian Regan's case, I found it, in 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 one moment when uh, when he's about to bury these packages um, that he's been collecting, you know, over the over the previous several months, and he's about to bury these packages. He's sorted all these documents, you know, top secret imagery, uh, classified reports from the CIA, and so on. And he comes across some documents that he decides are simply too sensitive, uh, and and he decides to destroy those documents. Um, and, you know, he, he first tries to flush them down the toilet, which is, you know, which is Brian Regan's stupid side. Um, and then he tries to mulch it in the tub of his motel room uh, by just leaving the documents in the tub and then, and then running the water. Um, uh, and then ultimately he just takes this this soggy mess and and throws it into a dumpster uh, so but he did that because he felt like a tinge of you know of guilt uh he felt that he didn't want to cross this line i mean the, to talk, there's no ideology involved in this you know he's not trying to get back at the united states so in the end he just needs money, and he needs to show them that he's smart. He just needs money, and he just needs to find a client that won't give him up later on. That, that which easier is said than done. Yeah, yeah, and th- which is why you know you you we we talked a little bit ago about how he studied counterintelligence cases and tried to prepare himself. Um, you know, he he picked these target countries in the Middle East: Libya, Iraq, Iran. He picked them because. Uh, he, he wanted a new market. He didn't want to go to Russia uh, because he was worried that that Russian spies would perhaps, you know, there were there were enough American, you know, enough Russian spies who were perhaps working for American intelligence that he would be found out sooner. Um, he also was somebody who was an expert at expert in the Middle East, mm-hmm. and so he decided to to kind of he thought he would understand better the kind of intelligence that countries like Libya and Iraq would like to have, and would be willing to pay for. Right. Volunteering was easier said than done. He uh, a comical uh, passage in the book about him trying to walk in yes to the embassy and volunteer himself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, didn't work out all that well. No, it didn't. Uh, you know, the the detail that I was able to collect uh, about that visit, he actually he was he was able to go to Europe. He was desperate. You know, he he had tried other means of uh, contacting the Libyans, and that hadn't succeeded. And so he decided that he would just walk into uh, a Libyan embassy in Europe and offer his services. Uh, and he actually got, you know, he, he, they took him somewhat seriously in the beginning, and they led him to a computer in the back and and asked him to sort of type type up what he wanted to say. There was also a language issue there, um, but I think after a few minutes, you know, just from his kind of clumsiness and his awkwardness, uh, they decided that he was perhaps just a dangle, and that. You know, and they threw him out of the embassy. So oh, crazy man! I mean, <laughs> yes. coming with information. Yes. So he goes the the route. Uh, probably spies should never do is write stuff down. Yes. <laughs> and he sends these very detailed, intricate letters that are somehow intercepted, or the FBI gets their hands on them. Do we have any information 
about how the FBI gets these letters? Well, um, we just know that it was an informant. Now, we don't even know whether that informant was somebody who worked at the Libyan embassy. So just to back up a little Mm -hmm. bit, these are anonymous letters that were intercepted by the FBI uh, in in December or late November of the year 2000. Uh, and they, they came to the FBI from somebody who had access to, uh, to the letters which had been sent to uh, the Libyan consulate in, in New York. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 I never pushed the FBI right. hard enough. Uh, to try to find out. I didn't uh, think it was appropriate uh, just because, you know, they that letter, I mean, that was really the foundation of the case. And, uh, and there was a certain period, even after Regan's arrest, when the FBI and the Department of Justice had to think hard about whether they could present this letter in court because if they did, then the defense counsel would have uh, would have immediately uh, jumped on the prosecution and said, well, you know, prove to us that you actually got this letter from the consulate, or where did you get it from? And that would have revealed uh, the identity of the informant, or right. could have compromised the informant. So I don't, I don't know the exact, I'm sure there's a, there's a deeper mm-hmm. story about the informant. We, we, we understand protecting sources and methods yes. uh, here more than probably anywhere else. I just want to know if there's any information that have come out. It, it's understandable that there's not. We'll get back to this great discussion in a moment, but first let me tell you a little about Blue Apron. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. This is what made them the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. They achieved this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Look, not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference. So it's important to know where your food comes from. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. They're also easy. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Think about some of their featured meals this month. They include things like spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salad, sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice, parmesan-crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli, or baby broccoli and fontina paninis with hard-boiled egg and arugula salad. Look... This sounds incredibly complicated, but it's not. It's really easy. Again, a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card, pre-portioned ingredients. Even someone like me can prepare this in less than an hour. But Blue Apron is also guaranteed. They have a freshness guarantee that promises that every ingredient in the delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. So you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free. Look, there's no obligation here, right? Three free meals with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash spycast. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash spycast, Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So the, the, the letter itself gets to the FBI where it finds its way to the desk of a veteran FBI agent named Stephen Carr. Uh, and his, actually, his boss was a woman named Lydia Jahorek, is that right? Jahorek. Jahorek. Uh-huh. And she is known for actually leading the Pollard investigation, another yes. major spy investigation. Okay. Now, the two of them are probably the best two people around to do this, but they still don't know who this letter is from. And the letter actually says that the sender is a, a CIA officer. Yes. Uh, so they, they don't have a whole lot to work with in the beginning. Uh, no, they don't. Uh, it's, a, it's a long letter, and it's encrypted, in fact, the letter is uh, letter comes to the FBI in three pieces. Really, it's it's the letter, and then there's there's another envelope with uh, with instructions for how to decrypt this coded letter, and then there's a third package containing uh, all the code words that are to be used to dec- decode the letter. But yes, once the letter is decoded, even though it goes goes on for five or six pages. Uh, offering secrets and 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 uh, and laying out an elaborate sort of 
plan for how the Libyans are to contact the sender of the letter. Uh, it's, you know, there, there are not very many clues uh, about who the sender could be. And that's really what starts off the case. And, and so the first thing that the FBI, Stephen Carr, uh, and Lydia and their colleagues have to do is to, is to determine the identity of the sender. Yeah, originally Stephen Carr thinks it might be someone at NSA because of the SIGINT background. Yes. Um, but there are some clues in the letter. Uh, one was he talks about his family, so I guess they assumed he was a little older than some 18-year-old kid. Right. And they also saw that he was a bit arrogant, you know, telling the Libyans exactly what to do, like he'd been around the block a couple times in yeah. the intelligence world. Yeah. One thing that was interesting was the way they discovered um, that he was potentially an NRO employee and had a little bit to do with where he had been using computers and yeah. libraries around the city. Yeah, um, I, I think the break in the in that case came from the break in that search uh, uh, came from digital forensics, uh, because along with the letter, the sender had included uh, about eighteen or nineteen pages uh, of of documents that had been printed out from Intellink, which is the which is the uh, classified internet that connects the various intelligence agencies. Uh, and, and so the sender had, uh, had obviously kind of included these documents uh, to prove that he or she, they still didn't know if it was a man, uh, he or she was, that, that, to, to prove that he or she had the requisite access to deliver the kinds of secrets that, that they were offering. So um, it was... You know, they the FBI sort of decided to drill into these documents to see, uh, see, and 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 to see where they might have been printed from, and and what computers within the intelligence community they had been accessed from, and uh, and so, but there were there were several computers, you know, that had accessed these documents, mm -hmm. because obviously. You know, these were documents that were useful right. to the intel community, to, to various agencies, and um, and it was it was really the discovery of this partial header, uh, you know, the address bar on one of the documents that showed which date it had been printed, uh, that 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 ultimately led to the FBI uh, kind of identifying or tracing these printouts to a computer inside the NRO, and that computer was one that Brian Regan had been using. Well, there's also some spelling errors. Yes. That kind of was a, a key component to kind of locking down who Regan might actually be the, the suspect here. I should say yeah. that, you know, the, the first thing that Stephen Carr um, and the other agents were struck by in this intercepted letter was just you know the, the the numerous spelling errors and and so it was it was uh, despite their despite the sender of the letter having taken great care to uh, cover his tracks he, you know he was somebody who was at the same time stupid enough not to have run a spell check mm -hmm. um, on on Microsoft Word so uh, the, the the spelling errors were were definitely a clue. That ultimately the FBI was able to use because when they when they identified the computer and they saw that uh, that Brian Regan had been using it, uh, they looked into Brian Regan's files, uh, you know his his communications, the various emails, reports, and things that he had written over the years at the NRO, and they could immediately tell that Regan had a spelling problem, uh, which later on they discovered was dyslexia. So. Even though they had a primary suspect, that was only a first step. Now they actually had to prove that he was a spy. I mean, this is the FBI. They have to find a way to create a criminal case. It's not we just know he is, like so the other intelligence agencies. This is trying to come up with evidence for a prosecution. And, but it was enough to put surveillance on Brian Regan. And if you wanted to avoid looking suspicious, you would do the opposite of what Brian Regan was doing when the FBI started following him. 
Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the stories I heard was, you know, he would he would jump on the metro, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, right right before. So let's say you get you got to Farragut Square, um, and then the train's pulling out of Farragut Square. Right before the doors closed, he would step off onto the platform just to check mm-hmm. uh, if somebody else was stepping off the train along with him. Uh, these were his counter surveillance techniques, but but it's obviously even way too many movies. <laughs> at that, I mean. Well, and he was he was obviously. You know, you know. They say that a, that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, and uh, and I think that was true in the case of, of of Regan. You know, at the same time, he would do stupid things like you know he had a map of Bern, uh, the city of Bern in Switzerland, or or he I think it was maybe a map of of the entire country that he was studying uh, while he was on uh, the subway. And then his his stop came, and in a rush, he sort of left the map behind. And uh, and I think one of the agents that was tailing him uh, just coolly went over and picked up the map and collected and kept it as as evidence. And later on, it came up in court. So uh, th- there were there were things that you know I, I describe a scene from the Crofton Library in Maryland where. Uh, Regan Regan was a prolific user of public libraries because he wanted to keep his internet searching, uh, you know, off the grid, if you will, uh, or or keep it untraceable to the extent he could, and so he was uh, he was using the computer at the Crofton Library, and there were a couple of FBI agents who were uh, in the library watching him. Uh, and and Regan does all the searching. He spends about 15 minutes browsing, and then he gets up from the computer, forgets to close the browser, <laughs> and walks away. And so <laughs> all that these agents had to do was was to hit the back button right. repeatedly to recreate his history. So those are just examples right. of things that a spy should not do, uh, no matter how many movies he's watched. Right. This is a, this is a time when the FBI actually has to be really careful. About making sure they have an ironclad, you know, airtight case mm-hmm. against Regan because they've just gone through a very embarrassing, actually pretty horrible situation with the spy within the FBI who turns out to be Robert Hansen, mm-hmm. but for a long time they thought it was somebody else, mm-hmm. a guy named Brian Kelly. Mm-hmm. They essentially ruined his life yeah. by overzealous prosecution, and so the kind of the remnants of this is still. Oh yeah, they're floating you know, around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they have to be—they have to make double, triple, quadruple sure uh, before they can commit any any more resources. So, even though they had the computer evidence, you know, the, the, the even though they had traced the, the the printouts in that intercepted letter to uh, Regan's computer, even though they had confirmed that Regan was a poor speller. Um, uh, you know, even though they had been able to recreate some of Regan's uh, searching on Intel Link to uh, to kind of see that you know Regan was likely looking for secrets that he wanted to sell, they still needed more evidence uh, to to make sure that you know that that they they could then actually move in and right. and, and and of course at that point even though. They knew that he was trying to sell secrets. They still didn't know what secrets he might have taken. They didn't know if he had already succeeded in uh, in selling some of them. Uh, so there were there was a lot of investigative work that was left to be done. Right. Uh, it was this was just the beginning of the case. And a key component to the investigation was code breaking, mm-hmm. and because a lot of what Regan did was in code, and so they brought in this man Daniel Olson, which. It's really interesting the juxtaposition between Olson and Regan because they're they're somewhat similar in different ways. Both are code people, but Olson actually physically couldn't do math. He had a learning disability that prevented him from doing straightforward math concepts, but he still became a prolific expert code breaker. Yeah, Olson is a really interesting character. I mean, he's uh, he's razor sharp. He's a really smart man. Uh, and a very nice man, I should add. Uh, 
but there were these similarities between his life and and Regan's. Um, uh, Olson, you know, Olson didn't have any any reading problems, and he was an okay student. But he had this terrible problem with math. He was never formally diagnosed, but from everything that he described, and from experts uh, that I've that I've talked to about Olson uh, and his condition, he probably had and has what's known as dyscalculia, uh, which is an inability to to perform certain numerical operations. You know, almost like a like a brain freeze. Uh, it, it, you know, whenever he he tried to 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 solve polynomial expressions or or what have you. But of course, you know, Olson's reaction to this uh, problem or this barrier uh, was to find other ways. In the same way that Brian Regan found mm-hmm. ways to compensate for his dyslexia. Um, Olson found ways to to still use his talent to to do something with it, and you know code breaking is is more about logic and um, you know it, it's about problem solving and patience. And yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, rather than just math, yeah. you know I'm sure there there are people who have the kinds of handicaps in math that Olson had and yet end up becoming mathematicians because, you know, mathematics itself is a wide-ranging subject. Right. And, and what we're talking about, really, uh, that, that Olson had problems with were uh, things like arithmetic and, and, and polynomial expressions and, and, and the like. So, uh, but it's, I was fascinated that, that, the, that the hunter and the hunted, in some ways, uh, you know, shared uh, certain traits. I want to take a second to tell you guys about this new subscription box service called Hunt a Killer. Maybe you've heard about it. People are obsessed. Hunt a Killer sends a package to your home each month full of creepy correspondence from their killer curator, which is a title I need to get added to my business card. He's a little bit like Hannibal Lecter, and he's got a mystery for you to solve. Each month, you'll receive new clues, letters, articles, objects, tools, all adding to an ongoing murder mystery. It's up to you to solve it, along with the thousands of other members all working together in our online communities. That's one of the great things about it. You can do it on your own if you want to take the chance of trying to figure this out on your own, or you can work together with others around the world who are trying to figure this out. It's the perfect thing for an armchair detective or a budding intelligence analyst looking to put their sleuthing skills to the test. You can join by logging on to huntakiller.com, H-U-N-T-A-K-I-L-L-E-R, Dot com and applying for membership. Hunt a Killer is growing so fast they have to limit new members to 500 a week. Once you apply and you're approved for membership, you'll receive a private link to subscribe. Then a monthly package arrives at your door each month. Waiting is the hardest part. They've been featured in BuzzFeed, Fast Company, and Bustle. Hunt a Killer is forming a cult-like community of web sleuths and amateur detectives. If you love poring over creepy codes, ciphers, and clues, Hunt a Killer is simply perfect. And if it's not for you, I have a feeling you know at least one person that would love to receive it as a gift. Look, I can't recommend this membership enough. It's about as cool as it gets. The only thing wrong with it is that I didn't think of it first. Hunter Killers offered a 10% discount for our listeners, which is tracked to this message. Use the code SPYCAST and get 10% off. That's SPYCAST for 10% off. It's all about Hunter Killer. So Olson, sorry, sorry, Daniel Olson. Uh, Brian Regan forces the issue in many ways because he's about to board a plane to go overseas. And the FBI was worried that this was kind of the big let's sell it to the bad guys trip. And you you set the scene very well for anyone who's been to Dulles and has ridden one of those horrible people movers (laughs) that takes you out to the actual terminals. Uh, This is where the FBI was forced to confront Regan for the first time. But even here, he had an interesting plan. He, he prepared himself just in case he did get arrested. And he really just sets out the blackmail of the United States. Uh, that's what was remarkable, because at this point, uh, you know, Brian Regan is arrested, and, and Steve Carr presents him with, uh, you know, with photocopies of uh, these encrypted 
sheets. And, you know, he won't admit that they're encrypted. He just, you know, he claims that they're simply puzzles that he's trying to solve. But, but these are materials that he was carrying in a manila folder. Uh, and so Steve Carr uh, sort of puts puts photocopies of these materials on the desk, and and Brian Regan knows that his bags have been searched, you know, prior, like without his knowledge. Um, and so at this point, you would expect Regan to just fess up and say, "Okay, all right, you got me, and here's what I did." And but Regan, again, this is. You know, we started the conversation with a discussion about how his childhood shaped his psychology. Uh, because of that intense desire to to be to show that he was smart, he thought, "Okay, I'm not. I'm smarter than than these people. Uh, I actually have a plan for getting out of this pickle." His plan was to try to blackmail the government. Um, you know, he doesn't uh, doesn't kind of act on this plan right away when he's arrested, but a few weeks later, when his defense lawyers are talking to the prosecution, he sends word that he has buried stuff out there that could start a war, and uh, and this is his way of saying uh, it's not his way. He actually says says it. You know, his his lawyer uses those exact words. He's got stuff buried out there that could start a war. And the only uh, condition in which he would be willing to help the government recover those things, those secrets, uh, is if the government agreed to, to give him a sentence of eight years or, or less. Uh, and so, so this is what makes Brian Regan a most unusual traitor um, because most spies at this point, when confronted with the evidence, would simply give up, but not Brian Regan, because he was always a plan B, plan C, plan right. D kind of guy. And there are very few trials of the century when it comes to spies. Most of the time they yes. cop a deal. Yeah, you they know, fold. Like, yeah, they yes. fold. But, well, really, he sets off a huge debate within the intelligence community about whether or not to take this deal. Uh, the NRO is like, take it, take it. We need all our stuff back. Yeah. Uh, but it's the FBI that really sits down and says, guys, think about this in the bigger term. Yeah. yeah. I think that was a very wise thing. And, and it was actually Lydia Jahorik uh, who makes the point that if the government were to cave uh, to this, this demand, to this blackmail, uh, just think about, you know, what that would do, what kind of signal that would send to future spies or people who are thinking about committing espionage. Um, because, you know, Regan was, was uh, I mean, he, it was clear by this point that he had every intention of selling the stuff, that he had taken a, a lot of stuff. Uh, and, and so the, the NRO was thinking, well, you know, can we just end this? Can we just get all this stuff back and call it quits? Uh, and Lydia kept sort of emphasizing that this would be very bad for uh, for counterintelligence in the long term. It was the next Brian Regan that comes along and reads about this Regan case and sees, yes. oh, well, that's, that's a handy way of getting out of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, luckily they don't have to really deal with him because of another kind of ridiculous story um they had all the evidence they needed sitting right there in front of them they didn't know it yes um they had uh computer techs take the computers and download everything from the computers and they thought they hadn't found anything right but it turns out they didn't even look at what they had downloaded that's right and this was just because you know there were two different sets of people who weren't really talking to each other at that point. Uh, there were the computer forensics people who had who who had actually simply taken all the stuff off of the. They had imaged the hard drives of his computers, um, and Steve Carr and his fellow agents thought that the same people who had imaged the hard drives would also have searched it. 
Or at least read the stuff. Right. Yeah. And they hadn't. Uh, and, and so, uh, it, you know, once they discovered, several months had gone by uh, and, and nothing had been found. And, and so the FBI was wondering, well, what do we do now? We can't reveal the source of that intercepted letter. Um, and so, and we need that letter to prove our case. And finally, Steve Carr sort of just, you know, he, he, he starts going, he and, and several of his, uh, of his colleagues um, in the Washington field office, they start going through all of the hard drives and they discover in the slack space of, uh, of this, this one hard drive uh, fragments of that same letter that had been intercepted, you know, the plain text version of that letter. And then ultimately they find the entire letter. Yeah, because even if you delete something and then empty your recycle bin, your computer is constantly auto-saving and keeping things in places yes. for later on. You know. I mean, this became an issue later on at trial because Brian Regan's lawyers tried to argue that um, you know, so much time had elapsed between his arrest, which was in August of 2001, and, uh, and, and February of 2002 when the letters were discovered that it was entirely possible that the FBI may have planted that right. evidence. Well, and Regan had spent that time still trying to outsmart the government. Uh, the government obviously knew that he had buried stuff all over the D.C. metro area, but he had planned so far ahead to bury toys and gifts and stuff for his kids and lay out little treasure hunts and stuff to claim that that's what he was actually doing. Right. His, you know, he'd, he'd always thought that, well, maybe if, if I am indeed being followed and if I'm questioned about having gone into the woods here and there, uh, then I need, I need a cover story for that. So he had prepared an alibi. He had prepared a cover story. And that was, he'd, he'd even videotaped himself uh, in the middle of the forest, uh, you know, kind of leaving a message for his kids that, hey, this is dad, he's creating this treasure hunt for you guys. Um, you know, in fact, you know, on one of these cover-up trips, uh, he, he'd actually gotten lost uh, in, in, in the woods in New Jersey, and a, uh, I think a park ranger had helped him find his way. So it was just, you know, the, the, the meticulousness. Right. Uh, and the forethought, uh, in some ways, almost uh, to, to the point of having overthought it, uh, is is what characterized his plot. I'm wondering if Regan had been arrested at a different time, if he would have held out, because while he was being tried, it was during the build-up to the Iraq War, um, and Iraq was a country that Regan had planned on trying to sell information to. And this is when President Bush is calling them the axis of evil, when, you know, we're calling things freedom fries and freedom toast and congressional <laughs> because the French don't want to invade Iraq with us. This even caused his lawyer to try to get a, a the date of the trial move because the worry was a jury would never be able to be impartial because the country was so riled up against Iraq at that point. Brian Regan, I believe, would never have gotten a life sentence uh, if it hadn't been for the time when he committed uh, his his acts. Uh, if, if this had been, you know, in the late 90s instead of early 2001, um, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think the prosecution would have uh, would have pressed um, uh, you know, for a life sentence. Well, they originally pressed for the death penalty. Right? Yes, they did. And that, I have to say, was in part a move to twist his arm right. into cooperating. Uh, but he didn't, you know, that that's not what led him to cooperate. In the end, he cooperated uh, only, only when the government threatened to prosecute his wife for having helped him in a cover-up plan. But you can read all about that yeah. in the book. Well, you say cooperate, and I think that's one of, the, one of the most comical parts of the book was 
when he agrees to help the FBI find all the stuff that he had buried. But being Brian Regan, he couldn't actually remember where everything was, even though he had written down notes. He couldn't remember the codes yes. that he had given himself to find all this stuff. Well, that's what happens when you overthink stuff. Yeah. You know, when, you, when, you, when your plan is too elaborate, uh, then you can't remember. You can't keep everything straight in the end. Well, the Mr. Eighty Percent is really an interesting thing. Where, where they, it, you can tell from all the conversation we had at this point, he he gets it almost perfect. Yes. And then there's that little part of his personality that screws things up. That twenty percent. Yes. That gets it wrong. It was actually um, the FBI's Mark Reeser. Uh, it was just a a, a brilliant uh, analytical person, um, uh, and he was you know he he worked alongside Stephen Carr to ultimately find all of these packages and dig them up. It was Mark Reeser who came up with this, uh, with this moniker for Brian Regan, Mr. 80%, uh, because in, in his view, and this was, I think, a very apt description, uh, Brian would be brilliant 80% of the way, and then he would take a sudden left turn to stupidity, and that would always end up unraveling him. Well, my favorite laugh-out-loud moment, I had to put the book down as I was chuckling, um, was they find this bin full of VHS tapes that were NRO training tapes. Mm -hmm. And Regan had uh, checked them out because he had access to do that and then copied all of them. But in this bin of VHS tapes, he had actually left a Post-it note with his name on it. With his name yeah. and uh, and and the word and and the the acronym SAO Signals Applications yeah. Office, which is the unit where he used to work, uh, and as Steve Carr used to tell me, uh, you know, uh, he had a very wry sense of humor. You know, he he would he said it was what we at the FBI would call a clue. <laughs> so if anybody had indeed stumbled upon that package or dug it up or, or discovered it in some some, some way, um, you know, they would probably have been able to trace it back to Brian Regan. Right. Probably with the post-it note on there. Um, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't want to give away any more of the book, but I, I do want to wrap us up talking about an interesting argument you make in the book that I, I want to see if we can't dive into a little bit. A lot of times these big cases, there's lessons learned. Uh, Aldrich Ames, when he was arrested, the CIA did a huge damage, assess, damage assessment. They, they had a come-to-Jesus moment where they kind of talked about how to fix it. doesn't seem like a lot of that was done here. Uh, you, you hint at the idea, you throw it out there for maybe a conversational piece, that if we had learned more from the Brian Regan experience, we may not have had a Chelsea Manning or an Edward Snowden, or it would have been mitigated or caught much earlier. What could we have learned better from this that we didn't that may have stopped that from happening? Well, I have two words for you. It's, it's network security. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's obvious that, uh, that Brian Regan's case was the earliest and clearest example of how much information could be lost because of the vulnerability of, of the servers at the intelligence community. And, uh, and I think despite having that, uh, that case, and, and, and luckily a case where ultimately, you know, because of the work done by the FBI, ultimately no information was, none of the secrets were actually lost. They were all recovered before they could reach enemy hands. Uh, it would have been the perfect case study for every intelligence agency to study in depth, and immediately they should have moved to secure their networks and to set up better monitoring systems to make sure that another Brian Regan would be able to come along, download stuff, and uh, print them out week in, week out, uh, and walk out of an intelligency. Uh, with a bag load of secrets, so so I think that you know I I really do believe that if uh, if the intel intelligence community had taken all the lessons offered by the Brian Regan case, uh, they would have been able to prevent the Manning case. They would have been able to prevent the Snowden case. I'm not putting Manning and Snowden 
in the same right. basket as Reagan. Yeah, there's because, no moral judgments or ethical thing here, but yeah. Right, but but I think just in terms of you know security of secrets, uh, there is no doubt that that the case offered lessons. We'd like to thank our friends at ZipRecruiter, Blue Apron, and Hunter Killer for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can get 10% off a membership to Hunter Killer by using the code SPYCAST. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash spycast. And you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ziprecruiter.com slash first. Well, the book is The Spy Who Couldn't Spell, A Dyslexic Traitor, Unbreakable Code, and the FBI's Hunt for America's Stolen Secrets. It is absolutely worth the read. I had a blast reading this book. Um, I mean, it's almost written like a novel. I mean, it's just, it's a great narrative. It's, it's a good spy story. Uh, so it's worth checking out. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Vince. I, I had fun. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.